hard thing is that social work is not an alternative to the carceral system, right? Social work is the carceral system in a different setting. Social work exists because of capitalism, right? Because people don't have, because we're in a market structure where we need people to not have so other people can have more. Why are we teaching people to cope with the structures as opposed to redistributing the power and the resources so that people can change the structure. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, Rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. My name is Vivian Guevara. I am a social worker and part of the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work, NAASW. Thank you for joining us for this conversation, Is Social Work Obsolete?, between Michelle Greer and Cassandra Federic, that will surely inspire reflection and action. Our conversation takes its title from Dr. Angela Y. Davis's book, Our Prisons Obsolete. In the introduction of Our Prisons Obsolete, Dr. Davis writes, in most circles, prison abolitionists are dismissed as utopians and idealists whose ideas are at best unrealistic and impracticable and at worst mystifying and foolish. This is a measure of how difficult it is to envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of sequestering people in dreadful places designed to separate them from their communities and families. The prison is considered so quote unquote natural that it is extremely hard to imagine life without it. In similar similar ways, it is difficult for social workers and social work institutions to envision a world where we social workers do not operate as middlemen and arms of surveillance among the many other positions of power in which we place ourselves that allow us to be tools of oppression rather than change makers for social justice. Michelle and Cassandra will lead us in thinking about social work and its possible or probable obsolescence. Thank you again for joining us and I'm passing the mic to Cassandra and Michelle. Hi all, good evening. Vivian, thank you so much for that intro. Cassandra, thank you for being here tonight. Um, Just wanted to be able to start this conversation to have folks understand that this is going to be a chance for us. We are going to pretend like we're on a couch somewhere having a conversation about what it means to be in this discipline that we're both trained in. Cassandra and I um, have known each other for a few years now, reconnecting um, over the past couple of years as we lean into uh, abolitionist work, thinking about uh, beyond survival for black and brown people in this country. Um, And we met each other in grad school over 10 years ago. And um, as we come to this conversation, our work that we did in grad school together to get to know each other, to support one another during that time was really some of these questions that I think we'll delve in today. Uh, So I think it's timely uh, 
um, that we're here and that you are available. I know how busy your schedule is, so really grateful. Um, and so as we think about that, we met um, in an undoing racism, essentially, class. You were my teacher, TA, slash advisor to what was coming down the pike. Like, this is how you will be able to get through social work school. And I think as we at the Network to Advance Abolition of Social Work have leaned into this work over the past two years, we've heard from so many students that say they stepped into school, they thought that they were going to be helpers, they thought that they'd be able to bring something to their community and school really shifted quickly for them and understanding what social work is and versus what the care work that they thought they'd be involved in. And so just thinking that we can get in some, some of the history of social work, um, our mutual friend Cameron gave us this article, um, as inspiration. And so in the violent history of benevolence by Chris Chapman, AJ Withers, they cite um, really specifically that they're aiming to trouble the institutionalized and common sense boundary between organized professional social work and what Uzu Anshua refers to as social working, the vastly diverse interventions into the social world that are found in all times and all places, which include caring, sharing, community work, and activism. So I know that when I came into social work, I was definitely looking at the latter, the caring, sharing community work um, and then seeing what that actually has been um, in terms of the institutionalized form. So I'm going to pause for a second, let you dive in. Um, yeah. So one, uh, really excited to be here. I mean, I don't think I ever thought that I would be on a Haymarket webinar, um, mostly just watch them. Um but I'm really grateful to NAASW uh, for uh, us creating this space during Social Work Month to like really explore different kinds of conversations. Uh, and honestly, to see NAASW really producing this kind of thought work um, is also really exciting considering um, the, the, the stops and starts that um, places like New York City has had around building um, infrastructure for uh, social workers who are over social work. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I often forget that our history starts in the classroom of a social work institution um, being um, going through the process of professionalizing of of potentially trying to professionalize our politics, right? And professionalize what we thought um, the world needed or how we could be used as a tool. And then very quickly realizing um, how social work as an institution and as a profession is more of a status quo helper as opposed to a people helper, right? Um, and the idea that we can make social work more anti-racist is an idea that I have different feelings about 10 years later after social work, um, which really sets the basis for this question around in the world that we are trying to build, um, is social work a part of that? Um, and I think that... Uh, this really goes to the con the first point that you're bringing up around social work and social working um, and the language around how we talk about caring for our communities um, and the kind of 
settler infrastructure um, that has been placed placed around care. Um, and so I think that I'm excited for us to like kind of delve into and theorize, you know, what what is it that we actually need moving forward for the world that we are trying to create as, you know, both people that are abolitionists, um, you know, and there are people in our space that identify as abolitionist social workers. I don't identify as an abolitionist social worker. Um, I identify as an abolitionist solely um, because the the my relationship to the descriptor of social worker is really complicated um, and nuanced. And yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I was I was talking to a friend about abolitionist. It's the title abolition social work. Just hearing you even provide that description of the separation of the two or not having them be there because for a lot of us that came to the network, uh, we had experienced having these conversations outside of a social work um, context, right? So being a part of organizing groups, um, being with other friends, being um, a part of uh, groups that were addressing like any sort of actions happening in prisons, um, but not seeing the same level of not seeing the same level in social work spaces, whether that's schools or even in our institutions. So thinking about the National Association of Social Workers, and we know that last year they started to have more conversations. They came out with their statement. Um, so when I was talking to a friend who's not a social worker, they were like, well, that doesn't seem intuitive. Social work to me would inherently be about abolition. And then I was like, well, you don't know the history of social work. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like, let's get to the heart of what social work, how it was institutionalized, right? right? Because we know forever there've been aunties and people in community who were doing care work, Mm -hmm. right? They were the folks who were, we would rely on and come to in community. And maybe eventually those folks also became social workers. The social work that we know of and the one that you know, our school got to say they're the first social work school from is really specific. That's right. You think about that. We have to think about settlement houses. You have to think about assimilation Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were taking people from their communities, bringing them to a space, giving them what was considered the ideal education and forcing them to assimilate to an ideal. And what was that ideal? It was one of whiteness. It was one of genteelness correctness and then also um, oftentimes leaving people out of the conversation so socializing them to think of themselves as other and belittled and that's the gatekeeping that social workers held in the beginning of that yeah and what I would offer there you know going back to uh, Angela Davis's book is prisons obsolete is that you know there's a portion when she talks about John Bender where he talks about English enlightenment right and he says that you know, when in the in the in relationship to penitentiaries and to prisons, part of the conversation was they wanted to impose order, classification, cleanliness, good work habits, self-consciousness, and really in order to service like the maintenance of order, salvation of the soul, the rationalization of personality. And when I think, when I read that and I think about that in the in the connection to prisons. That is exactly what um, the institutions of settlement houses, the stealing of indigenous children to teach them Christianity, the 
And, you know, that's back then. But we're even talking about what are the metrics that we put in place now for parents in family, in family courts, right? When we are trying to build out the infrastructure for what good parenting is, right? Um, and when you can get your kid back and the role that social workers play in the institution of uh, child welfare. Sorry, Judith, I'll slow down. Is that... Um, we're using these kinds of uh, metrics uh, of English enlightenment as a way to decide if people are worthy to be in society or if they should be uh, cast aside or alienated. And, you know, in the context of uh, um, Angela's book, it was talking about prisons. But when we really have to think about what is the role that social workers play in maintaining social order. Mm-hmm. Right. If we look at the conversation that we're having now in the broader conversation, the political moment, what people are upset about is not that people don't have homes. They're upset that they see poverty. Yeah. They're upset that they see um, disorder, that people aren't clean, that people don't have jobs, that there is an there is an order that people expect. And so it seems that, you know, as people talk about policing and prisons as the institutions of protecting property, so is social work. Right. That social work, that the things, even the very beginnings of social work and the history and the roles that the Jane Adams and the Marys played was really about how do we create order? How, what are the institutions and the metrics of cleanliness? How do we actually get people to build work habits that we identify as good? Um, and so I think that's some of the stuff that I think is really important about as we start to challenge the history and start looking at the frameworks of social control on the beginning histories, right? And then looking at the difference between what was the social work they were doing versus social work work that Ida B. Wells was doing, right? And I think you wanted to talk about that, about the hidden history of people that are later classified to be social workers because they were doing social workings and care work. Right. So you hit the nail on the nose. Uh, so definitely Ida B. Wells. I was talking to someone else and they had, there, there are so many other people, right? Like if we actually had a list of the unknown folks. And if you think about, I like to think about group work and some of the ways in which um, if you if you were to take apart um, any of the group work models, or even if you think about the popularization of dialectical behavior therapy, which has like meditation and mindfulness, like these are all indigenous practices, right? These are things that people do maybe in their church communities or religious communities. How do we reinstill those things into um, institutionalized care work or institutionalized healing when they they are things that were separated from us in the thing in the things you're talking about. You remove me from my from my cultural practices, and then I have to go to an institution to get some watered down version of it. And that's an oversimplification. Um, but I think it's really interesting the ways in which those become popularized in the institutions where you're talking about the order. I also think it's the surveillance of it. That's so now right. I understand why you're doing it. I've pathologized while you're doing it. And I'm going to tell you now why you're doing this. That's right. So maybe before you were sitting, um, 
with your community, having practices where you were communicating, being in relationship with one another, doing things that made you feel unhealing. But now I'm going to tell you, you have to do this because you're anxious or because um, this is the way in which you can now be, now you can be a part of the community. Um, So Ida B. Wells is definitely someone who we lift up in this space, um, but there are so many other care workers who we think about um, who, again, are maybe the aunt who's taking care of people because she takes other folks, pe- other folks' kids in. We know that the parent does not lose their parental rights because she's willing to, you know, have a conversation with the folks down the way is able to ensure that folks can go to a different home and be safe when they need to be. Um, and I think as we think about the institutionalization of social work, we also have to talk about the licensure because when you have access to schools and the licensure, then folks, um, and you say that you have to have these things in order to be that person in community, then again, it continues to separate us from, uh, the aunties and the people who are traditionally doing the work and seeing that. I think it's really interesting that in this time when we talk about abolition and there are these calls for more supports that people are calling for social workers in these spaces. Exactly. I especially um, have had trouble with that as a former school social worker. Um, and as we call for um, see policing in schools, having that conversation of what does it mean to actually be a social worker in school and what kind of social worker can you be depending on what's available to you. And so really that folks have to do a power analysis of the environment that they're in and understand that these institutions have never really spoken to social work in the first place. That's right. And then you're bringing in a social worker. You want to make sure that that person has the ideals that you're talking about. If you are talking about care work, are they the gatekeeper who's there to support assimilation into the model and support the order? Or are they someone who's like, what, what is their role within that space? Um, and the, what you're hired to do as a school social worker is not often what times people name, uh, is not what they name in those school spaces, what folks are, want, right? A trauma worker, someone who can connect them to services is often said, someone who can understand and then help them advocate within that space. Um, but schools are also set up to, I was thinking as you were talking about this and we were naming social workers, just like schools are the same exact thing. And so we know that schools aren't always the safest places and that they're also spaces where we see these policies being um, institutionalized historically. And even. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the hard thing is, is that social work is not an alternative to right. the carceral system, right? Social work is the carceral system in a different setting. And I think that's a really hard setting. It's a really hard space for social workers um, to sit with. And, and I say that because the very institution of institutionalized social work, the profession, the discipline, um, not only are its roots based in really in things that cannot be reformed, but it's also like social work exists because of capitalism. Right. Because people don't have because we're in a market structure where we need people to not have so other people can have more. And social work, even in the way that we're trained, it's like, you know, in the way that we try to say that we provide better 
support for people than like psychologists and psychiatrists, right? Is like, well, we help you deal with the realities of the world and we give you coping mechanisms to deal with the realities of the world and psychology and psychiatry focus on the individual. But honestly, right? If we're honest, right? And I say this as someone who has been in therapy for like seven years and only with a social worker, right? Um, But if we're honest about it, why are we teaching people to cope with the structures as opposed to redistributing the power and the resources so the people can change the structure, right? And if the latter is what builds an alternative, uh, the former of like teaching people how to cope with the structures, right? And how to navigate life based on these things um, is it's not a short-term solution. Part of it is a distraction, right? Part of it is destabilizing. It impedes the organizing that needs to happen. Um, and I think one of the ways that that is, uh, it became super clear was in the summer of 2020 when the police uprise, the, the people uprising is happening around George Floyd and social workers like, well, put us in, put us mm-hmm. into the police stations will help. And that is a distraction for the broader conversation around abolition, right? It is a distraction for what are the kinds of institutions that need the resourcing for the scaling up of de-escalation, of removing law enforcement. I don't want a social worker to be standing next to a police officer while the police officer is kicking my ass, right? And so like, the conversation about what is actual, what is the actual point of the social worker in that space? Is it to make it kinder and gentler, right? Or is it the conversation that we actually need to be divesting from policing, right? Defunding policing and actually scaling up the care work that we saw during COVID, right? With the mutual aid societies, Dean, Dean Spade talks a lot about that. Crystal Hudson in New York really built out an infrastructure around mutual aid that we would call social working, but we wouldn't necessarily call social work. And so when you ask me, like, what would we fund? I would rather fund the social working and actually defund the institutionalization of social work. Should Safe Horizon be a $90 million organization? No, right? We really have to talk about the corporatization of what care work is because you can have a $90 million organization that's paying people less than $35,000 a year. There's like, when we talk about the corporatization of the prison industrial complex, when we talk about the corporatization of um, prison, the labor that happens in prison, we have to look at those that infrastructure also in social work and recognize that it is just as exploitative and even more insidious because it is it is in the matters of the heart because you care about people that you too should not be fighting against the corporate institutionalization that is associated with social services that are in place because we don't have the power or the infrastructure to fight back against the corporate interests that are making our social service needs necessary. I hear that. I'm just going to pause on that for a second. Hope everyone's taking that in. One hundred percent. I mean, it also makes me think about when they say social workers aren't unionized. You know, that's a whole 
And when we talk about this, um, being looked at as a women's profession and thinking through like even the supports that you can get for it and how that continues to be even belittled in the mental health, like hierarchy of positions. But I definitely agree in terms of the corporatization of social work and thinking through. And I, I think it's really important that you name some of these care activities that folks have been engaging in, in their community during the, um, during the pandemic, during the uprisings uh, is why this collective came together and thinking about how do you respond so quickly and begin to just foster places of conversation. And my concern too, with the mutual aid groups is that, you know, as they're starting to have those conversations, how do they feel pressure to then become a part of the nonprofit industrial conference? How do they feel pressure to become corporatized? What does it mean if you're looking for a 501c3 status or the fact that now, or, or even the tensions between if they're run all by non-community members, what does it mean to be a community member? That's right. Can be a newer community member? That's right. Um, and be the person that's offering services to maybe a community that you live on the periphery of, but haven't been a part of. That's um, right. Do you think that they offer, though, beautiful new conversations around what does it mean to be a neighbor? That's right. And some things that have not happened in the face of gentrification. Um that we're able to come out in this moment. And so now seeing that folks at a larger level are able to have these conversations around abolition or they're like, now what, what does that mean? I don't want to call the police on my neighbor that might be having something going on um, and seeing the ways in which um, there's these new tools, these new hotlines, people are even imagining the 911 number. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's something I think is a really beautiful moment. And I'm wondering how do we, how, how do we start to think about abolitionist tools and what are some of the ones that you have been using? So I know you're not abolitionist social worker. What has been your abolitionist like strategies, journey, anywhere that you would like to, or anything that maybe you had as a practice as a social worker that you've like tailored or transitioned into specifically using? I mean, I think about it as someone who was literally an executive director of a nonprofit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what are the strategies um, that are necessary for my organization to not to not exist in the future? Right, like if DPA exists in twenty years, that you know, I'd be really sad. Um, and I say that because you know, one of my board members, Juan Cartagena, actually challenged us at one of the board meetings, and he was like, "Okay, this is our strategic plan, and if we get this, do we close?" Right. Um, and I think, I think for me as an abolitionist, some of the strategies that I've been trying to employ, and I think is actually necessary in order for us to do the social working is for power to be built amongst the people that are in communities. Right. And so like, how do we democratize the knowledge that we have? How do we what are the ways that we can disrupt the kind of processes that we have to go through in order to get things? Um, What are the ways that we can start to lessen the powers of the processes that we're in? Um, I often think about that most of my time is spent doing policymaking, right? And, you know, one of the most successful campaigns that we've done that I've been a part of is when we actually change the material conditions for people without passing a bill. 
Mm. Right. And showing that policy making isn't the end goal um, and proving it to myself and then also proving it to our community and coalition that, yeah, like the the thing that the nonprofit and the funders want us to do is to pass this bill. But what we need to do as a community is to change the conditions and the contours of the conversation as to the issue that we're talking about. Right. Um, and how do we make policy um, less powerful um, and how do we build our success in a metric that's actually um, generative for our community? Um, and I think that those are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in ascribing to social working, right? And why those are the things that, for me, push the question, is social work a 21st century or 22nd century kind of solution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe social work was necessary in the 18th and 19th century or 20th century, I think we should really be having the conversations if this is necessary or responsive or responsible um, for people who believe in abolition to be pushing as an institution in the 2020s, the 2030s, the 2040s, the 2050s. Like, can social work as a profession, an institution, as a discipline stand alongside abolition um, in the way that we're talking about it? Mm-hmm. I think those are essential questions as we begin to see communities demanding something different. You know, Angela Davis gave us this wonderful book to to have this framework and to start to ask these critical questions over 10 years ago. And in this moment, I do think it's important to ask, where are we? And to imagine something different. And if you don't, start to have this conversation, then, you know, without there having to be a pandemic or some critical mass thing, like, do you have to have something shock you so drastically into being able to spend some time imagining what the other possibilities are? And I think that in this call to start to really think about what liberation looks like for multiple people, we have to also say, what is our um, responsibility? And can we have a responsibility to be in conversation about this? I do think that it's after getting to a certain point in the career, right? I too am on an executive team. It's like, okay, well now you, you know, people want to make money. People want to be able to have a good lifestyle for their families and things like that. But understanding what is it that, what is it that is impacted? Um, And, and, why do you come into this work versus what is it that you want for your livelihood? And you have to be able to have those conversations and push yourself and also have other people push you um, to think beyond that. So I'm really happy to hear about, I I haven't heard that framework for policy. Um, That's really um, helpful to hear um, in terms of the way that you're thinking about it. Um, I've thought a lot about it in terms of practice, direct practice. And so even thinking about doing that beyond. And I hear, you know where I hear it the most from? Young people. So in my work, young people are like, we don't want to do the policy thing. We don't want to do the politics thing. We're done. Like that's been done. We're ready for something new. We've, we, we, we were born during the Obama administration era. Things have not changed. And we got backlash from that. We, we, it's time for something else. 
If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, this collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment and looking to the future through a redistributive queer and feminist lens. As Kianga Yamada-Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, and, you know, to extrapolate the policy thing, like, does it really make sense for us to have um, our resources running through a social service infrastructure? Right? Like, it's wild to me that we have food pantry lines. Yeah. Right? Um, it's wild to me that we haven't figured out how to give people the things that they need, especially in a country where we have so many things in abundance, right? But there's this like cognitive dissonance between what we know is available versus what people are getting. And then there's this thing where the things that we need are being uh, funneled through the infrastructure of social work. Right. So like mental health is being funneled through social work. Supports for families that are struggling are being going through social work, like food, health care, like all these things are being funneled through an infrastructure of social service as opposed to government responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. And. And social service also. Um, really upholds the infrastructure of charity and philanthropy, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think on another webinar, folks have talked about why those things are also obsolete, right? Or should be obsolete. Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but the thing for me is, you know, Ruthie Wilson-Gilbert talks about how the prison industrial complex is a response to a surplus of capital, land, labor, and state. Um, and capacity. And I'd argue that social work is, is, is there to protect capital, land, labor, um, and the state capacity. Um, because it like the very institution of it, not only does it disrupt our ability to actually um, call for the the power or power building or the, dis the dissemination of resources and infrastructure and knowledge, but it's also like, it's what they point to, right? So you can be in a place like New York City, we have 92,000, or New York, you have 92,000 um, folks that are struggling with houselessness, right? And the mayor can talk to shelters, can point to shelters, 
and a mayor who is like very well known to be have real relationships with developers. And you're like pushing the the responsibility, the conversation on on the real issues of um, homelessness and affordable housing to shelters. Ninety two. Ninety two thousand people. And then you have these homeless shelters like, yeah, we're ready and able. No, they should be like, no, we don't need shelters. There is a surplus. Our people don't need shelters. They need homes. And that's what I'm talking about, where how a social work as a profession profession positioned itself because it want it wants access to decision makers. And that's the kind of stuff that disrupts people from getting the things that we need. Because our intermediaries are working against us. They're working for like survival and not liberation. Exactly. 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 And also sometimes made afraid by because of the licensure, because of the mandates that are put on them. And also not taught how to disrupt. I think it's really interesting that like schools that you had community organizing schools um, as a part of their social work programs, remove them or retailer them, right? To be organizational design and management um, versus really, and at the same time that you're seeing like the bills come through for community development um, acts and you see the certification of having to be a nonprofit, right? So if we're thinking about the history and everything coming along at the same time, seeing social work be codified at the same time that you have to certify your nonprofit and you have to have all these things. Um, I think there's something that you named about um, people doing the work for survival versus um, care or really for liberation. I also think it's in the fabric of the country. So if we're thinking about this as like, do you deserve, who deserves That's right. to have access to their basic needs and the understanding is that not everyone deserves that. Right. We don't have a country that is saying, oh, hey, everyone can have free education. Everyone can have access to housing. Those sort of things. those things came from actions. And even thinking about the social work that we have, the federal one that comes out of the depression. And as you talk about having conversations around resources, that really makes me think of that moment. So thinking about how to, again, have order, how to surveil and ensure that the folks that have always um been lifted up in those moments, continue to receive. So I, I, yeah, no, 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 you go. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think there's a belief in the permanence of the subservitude of a group of people in this country. Like our field is based on the idea that there will always be the have nots. And I think that that is that is the thing that makes it most um, dangerous um, for the future um, is that there is a belief of permanence um, that um, some people will always be without and therefore there needs to be someone that could help those people. Um, And I, one of the things that's been interesting for me, in my own journey around abolition, is the idea that abolition doesn't mean harm wouldn't happen, right? Mm, um, yeah. 
I think as a abolitionist, I think it took me a while to realize that reparations wasn't the finish line and that (laughs) that (laughs) abolition didn't mean that there would be no harm and that abolition didn't mean that it would be a utopia, but that abolition meant that we would do things differently when harm happened, right? And that, um, that there are structural reasons why harm has a prevalence. And if we work on the structural reasons, we can bring down the incidence of, of certain kinds of harms, but that harm happens because um, individual people are people and they're complex and you don't know, and you know, they're Virgos and Scorpios and all the other things. Right. Um, But uh, there is this, um, I think that's different in social work. Uh, the profession. I don't. I don't think there always has have to be have nots. Um, but I think that is a defining factor in the the fabric of the institution of social work. That is really concerning when we're trying to dismantle and create a new world. Like I don't want to work with an institution or people that believe there will always be have nots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that has the right ingredients for radical imagination. Um, And I think people that are in social work now, our clients, um, the the people that we work with, the patients, the consumers, our populations are deserved because of that permanence belief. I agree with that. And you know, so are the people who decide to come into social work because how are we, I mean, the shift has to be how we're in relationship to one another. Yeah. And if I'm always in the power position, able to write a treatment plan for your life, mm-hmm. then the power dynamic is always going to be there. And we have, there will always be power dynamics and relationships. I think that that's sort of what you were also naming with the harm component, I'm thinking a lot about the ways in which social workers have so much control over family, so much control over motherhood, parenthood um, as a part of our institutions that were created by social work. Um, And I think based on what you're saying, I think about this term that was often said in school that we should be social working ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting tag to have as you know that that's something that you're going to, is going to be said to you by so, by your professors or folks, but really not having that conversation in the mm-hmm. discipline. Um, have you thought about what that would look like to, to social work yourself? out of a job or to social work, social work out of a job? (laughs) Um, You know, right now, the the issue that feels most urgent to me um, that I happen to work on is drug policy, right? And I think that there is a point where the, the need for an organization like DPA will be different or like if DPA exists, it will be in a completely different fashion. Um, I can say that's when we 
you know, legalize all drugs, right? Like I can say that, right? But I think it might be before that. I think if there's like a clear pathway and that communities have been built up in order to like have the right kinds of conversations that have the tools to get it over the finish line, right? Like there's no reason for us, there's no reason for an institution like DPA to feel like they have to wait the whole time, right? Um, We are an intermediary or we're trying to be an intermediary to help uh, capacitate like and uh, platform the knowledge that we already know and we already know in community exists. I mean, I think one of the most powerful things that I have learned from the drug user unions that I've worked with, but also like the history of the organizing of people who use drugs is that one of the first national calls for universal healthcare came out of the 60s and 70s when um, uh, during the Lincoln Hospital takeover, where people who use drugs were like, yo, it's not that we just need methadone. Like, we need basic health care, right? And, you know, we now have, like, the Bernie Sanders of the world and, you know, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and different organizations that are talking about this. And they don't, they don't talk about the history of people who you who use drugs saying like hey like it's not that i just need this but i also need to get my blood pressure checked right like i also need to be able to talk about my health conditions and how i want to live my life outside of drug use um and to me in that conversation in that question around how do i social work social work myself out of a job i think about what would have life look like Now, if 40 years ago, um, the organizing around people who use drugs had actually been supported as opposed to the coercive treatment facilities and the and the proliferation of prisons in New York based on the Rockefeller drug laws had not been erected. Like, what if we had listened to the people who use drugs in the Bronx who were taking over Lincoln Hospital, who were having broader conversations about what their communities actually needed, would we still be in an overdose crisis where over 105,000 people have died if those communities were actually empowered as opposed to the multi-layered social service infrastructure that has been created in New York? Um, So I think what I'm thinking about is looking for those moments. What are those moments where you can flip the switch? Um, or or how can I build toward that moment? How can I expedite that moment where there's an opening to really platform um, and support and reinforce communities' desire uh, to build their beloved community? Definitely understand that and CDPA is doing that work. Um, you know, y'all aren't quiet. You very, you know, when we're talking about social workers who are, you know, when it's a job and when it's about liberation work, very much, you know, I've been able to learn from multiple people who are at DPA, learning from the research, learning from the ways in which you articulate, um, really articulate and allow people to speak for their own experiences. Um, and even training providers who are, 
You know what I mean? Because I think that that's really important too, is being able to have access. So you even know where to get that from. If you come into social work from the side of, maybe you come from some random town, you come to New York city, you go to one of the social work schools. Now you're plopped into a community you do not know. And you've never had a conversation and maybe you've come from your own background or experience, but usually you're put into a community that you have not experienced. And so what does it mean to then have folks who are supporting and amplifying really the voices of folks who have been doing this work for an incredibly um, long amount of time. And also knowing that people usually know some part of what they need for their own healing. That's right. And I was, and I, and I just want to be really honest. Like we weren't always like that. We're not always good at it. Um, And there are, Tons of people that call us in all the time, right? So um, I think, um, you know, we've done some real harm, right? And I think um, that um, part of the reason I'm in a reflective space around the roles that I play is because I'm in community with people who um, passively and forcibly... (laughs) put me in a reflective space about the role that I'm playing and what I'm doing. And and I think that social work as an institution doesn't really have that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say in our organizing spaces for better and for worse, we also do that um, for each other. Um, And I think that that's going to be a key element in the world that we're building. Um, Is figuring out how to hold people in community, I think people like to talk a lot about principled struggle um, and um, people hate struggle mm-hmm. and people lack principles. And so, uh, and I think social work does lacks both those things, right? Like so, <laughs> social work lacks principles. Like we have a whole thing of ethics that we don't really hold to, um, but we like to point to. And then I think there's, the like we convince people that the struggle is a part of life um, and there are struggles that are a part of life, but there are structural struggles that don't actually have to exist. Um, but we maintain because that's our, that is our role in the order. You know, I'm just pulling it all in because we, yeah. we, we, we touched on so many different places and I'm just social work is massive. Um, it touches so many different parts of people's lives. And I know that folks have their focus and their disciplines, um, and people come in very strongly like that. Like, I know I want to do clinical work and I'm going to be a therapist, or I know I want to do policy work or these sort of things. Um, but really taking a moment to reflect on what does that mean and why? Yeah. And, and yeah. so people leave social work school, like they leave social work right after too. Like, oh crap, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, we, I've been mostly talking about macro and meso level social work, right? Folks that do programmatic work, folks that do like community organizing and policy work. But I think there is a conversation here about what is the role of clinical social work in abolition, right? And what are, what is abolitionist, what are the abolitionist principles that need to be a part of clinical social work? And in the conversation around therapy and power and the barriers and the boundaries, you know, I, I do think there is a difference between talking to your friends and talking to your therapist, right? But I think that those principles 
and that kind of culture and that kind of like setup, right? Um, you can find in multiple cultures um, that are not therapy, right? Like there's councils, there's tribunals and com- mm-hmm. there's elders, right? Like, you know, talking to my elder, my family is not like talking to my little friend. And so like, no, we, already have, <laughs> we already have that kind of infrastructure. And I just think that we're just in a moment of like, great possibility. Um, And in order for us to move forward, I really think that the conversation is less about undoing racism in social work and undoing the need for a social work profession. Like that is the 22nd century um, North Star. um, Because if you, like you can undo racism in social work, that's fine. But then your your clients are still dealing with racism in every other situation. Yeah. Right? And so can we undo the need for a social work profession? Can we strengthen communities? Um, can we build institutions that are not based in surveillance um, or the the tampering of social change. Um, what does that look like? Does our care system actually have to be complementary or invisibilized, or can it be the main version of care support um, in the community? You know, I think your questions around mutual aid are really important ones, right? Um, because I do see a lot of people who have built out these amazing mutual aid. Uh, infrastructures uh, that are outside the purview of like a traditional social service, um, but they also get tripped up on a bunch of stuff, right? Because they're still doing it in the the water of what social service infrastructure is. Um, yeah attraction you know i want to help more people there's some power from it and you that when you name that as an organization and then as yourself that you have folk like checks and balances people to hold you accountable people to hold a mirror and talk to about it there has to be a conversation about that it feels good to help people it feels good to be a part of community think you're growing something and want it to go bigger and so how do you continue to involve community and it get that feedback i do think that with this conversation around individual not individual but individual practice or clinical practice and those conversations around what can therapeutic support look like it's really being able to think about what your practice is and and, and how do you begin to dissent in that we get trained so frequently on like this is the model and this has to be the model and this is the only way to heal someone with and then we get trained on this is how you get consent but if this is the model that's already been built out how am I supposed to get consent from somebody around what I'm doing with them right and so automatically if I'm trying to be a holistic provider and helper or therapist then I'm going to be dissenting from that clinical model because to be in relationship with you, I have to have some other conversations and start to think about that. I think about undoing racism and I think it's an important conversation to have. I think the way in which it's been used, going back to order, I think it's been a way to order and bring white people in to having a conversation that's needed to be had when they're in communities. 
And we know that the harm that happens there because of lack of cultural understanding, I don't think it goes far enough. And, um, there's so many people who are like, we did undoing racism where we continue to be involved in it. And I think that that's really important. I respect so many people who are involved in it and have spent so much time in so many different right. volunteering my time to that's do right. the trainings for folks. Um, but I think we have to be beyond that. And I think that if you are choosing to come into social work and work in communities that you do not belong to, then you have to do your own work and it shouldn't be something and, and ask yourself why when we know that the things that we're talking about are also in the communities in which people come from. Yeah. I mean, I think the hard thing about social work excellence is the scaling. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, when we're doing like clinical social work and we're saying like, we're going to dissent from the model. It's like, okay, so is that person supposed to create a new model for every person that comes in? And like, how does, how do you navigate that person? And, you know, when people ask me the question, well, how do you scale if you want to abolish everything? I'm just like, well, I don't know. And I feel like there's strength and power in freaking saying, I don't know. It is honestly the most, it is a really unsatisfactory answer um, because we are committed to immediacy but if we had what we needed already we would have done it right right Right. (laughs) you know and you studied something for 10 years to make it IRB approved and studied and the ish still don't work you know we can still know but it's not doing the thing so let me not pretend yeah Um, I love that And it's fun to be like, let's start from scratch. And this is what I think is being offered to us as we talk about like, can this be obsolete? What, what can be in the space of it? Yeah. And you know, I do want to, I know that I probably should have said this in the beginning. I mean, I do think we have to offer some humility, right? Like yeah, social work is offering something for people currently, like people Mm -hmm. are housed and leaving dangerous situations and, um, and those things are important and those things should happen. And we can talk about stop gaps for those things to include. But um, for what we see in this world currently, I think it's okay to say that it's not a, what we're doing now is not enough. Yeah. Very like, and it's not working at the scale that we needed to be, or we wouldn't have 92,000 people in New York homeless. Like we just wouldn't, right? And so I think this again draws another parallel to the criminal legal system and prisons where there are some people that will say, no, it's working because such and such and such. And we're saying, no, it's not working because such and such and such. And so it's like the scale to what we, what the scale to which the criminal legal system said it would work has failed abysmally, but we've committed to it. Right. And so what I'm saying is the scale to which we thought social work would have worked has failed abysmally. So we should consider abolishing it like that, that it is okay for us to say that social work should be abolished because the scale to which what we were promised, what we were, what, what they promised us, what they said to us, the roots of racism, classism, sexism, um, 
that it was built from it, like the idea for order instead of dissent. Uh, those are a lot of the same things that were sold to us for for prisons um, and that um, we've outgrown what this was supposed to do. Um, and I think it's okay for us to say that something else is needed. I think that is a perfect, perfect moment to pause and transition to questions. Yeah, the promise is, has not been met. And oh, the possibilities. I'm going to be rewatching this so I can take all these nuggets down um, because there's so many of them. And everyone in, who's listening and watching is really appreciative of all of the gems and jewels that you are dropping. I'm going to ask a, a couple of questions that folks had. Um, there are social work students watching, I think in a classroom somewhere and probably on, on YouTube as well. So a question from a social work student. How can current social work students get involved with abolition and pose themselves to remove the need for social work rather than uphold the current systems? Uh, <laughs> I would say, so my biggest thing is that if you're doing social work um, as a part of your day job to pay your bills, um, you need to be organizing afterwards. Um, I think that's why organizations like um, the Radical Social Workers in New York was created, reasons why NAASW has been created. I think find if you can't find like an organization of social workers that um, are working towards abolition, finding your local abolitionist work. There's such a prevalence of abolitionist organizing now that students should be plugging into that because I think anything that we do towards abolition will get us closer to abolishing social work. I agree with that. You remember the RISE group? Mm-hmm. I was on that listserv too. Right? <laughs> they're, they're like being in school is a perfect time to practice. Yeah. It's a perfect time to ask questions. It's a perfect time to have access to people from all different communities. And then from that, you know, you sort of create your base, your go-to of people that you can call on years later and be like, hey, how, how did you deal with that? Or can we get together and practice this? I mean, that's essentially how the network of abolitionists how this network came together, right? We all know each other through some connections um, and the work and we're like, can we practice something? And so I definitely agree with Cassandra about, you know, doing stuff outside of your day job. Um, I think oftentimes people look to their jobs for all the answers. They look to their supervisors to hold them and um, get them to where they need to be. And that's just not the reality of the situation, especially when things are caught up in institutions. Um, so making time for that. Thank you both. And another, I think, connected question. Can you say more about the pivot points or moments where there's greater possibility to build the social working that is aligned with abolitionist values? Uh, I think, uh, I think one of the big pivot points for me was watching the mutual aid stuff explode during the pandemic. Um, because 
mutual aid is not a nine to five gig, right? Nobody had to go to the office. Like everyone was stuck home and people literally like did the phone tree and like emailing and there were Google sheets going everywhere. Like, I mean, think about how y'all had to find like how, where you could get COVID tests or where you could get vaccines. People were just like creating technology and creating like all of a sudden there was like a proliferation of resources from people who just gave a damn. Not people who were paid to do it, not people who were funded to do it, but people who gave a damn and who had the knowledge and had the time and saw the need. And to me, I thought that was a big pivot point in showing that that we already have we already have a lot of what we need to create the infrastructure to take care of each other. Um, and I think Michelle is right to say that we are at a, a pivot point again where it's like, what road do they go down? Do they go down the institutional road or, or ask the questions as what do they need to proliferate that do not fall under the same trappings of the institutionalization of mutual aid? Um, yeah. There's something that happened in the slowdown of that. People mm-hmm. didn't have the busyness, at least for how I'm understanding it from the Brooklyn perspective. Um, I was on the periphery of the Fort Greene and the the Prospect Heights mutual aid groups. And even in my building that I grew up in, um, neighbors I'd never spoken to before. And I think that there was a slowdown in like, we're actually going to spend some time in relationship. And Vivian, you you also engage in restorative justice. And I think that there's something about like that relationship building. And oftentimes people say this, right? I was able to heal from this or get to push further in this because I knew that person better. I knew their humanity. And sometimes that's even so simple. Maybe it's sometimes it seems too lifetime, but I do think that once people are able to have like that little bit of relationship building, like, oh, I know you, you can't avoid me. I can't be those people that you just want to take off the street and ignore. I am your neighbor and I'm in community with you. So the care work becomes more caring when I'm in relationship with you. And it shouldn't have to be that way. But again, our country isn't based off of caring. It's based off of punishment. And so we have to, in shifting that, we have to practice something different where we're in relationship with each other. Thank you both. And a question specifically for you, Michelle, that came through, um, which uh, Cassandra, I now rethinking abolitionist social work and how it's together. But for you, Michelle, how do you relate to the words abolitionist social work? Do you think that exists or are those words contradictory? I'm still working this out. (laughs) I am 100% working it out. Am I actively a social worker? Yes, I practice. Um, I supervise social work interns and social workers. Am I abolitionist? Yes. Am I in, I'm in a different place than I was 10 years ago. Um, And so... Um, I think if we're talking about the social working work, the way that I like to practice is very much from an abolitionist lens. If we're talking about what it looks like when I have to, when I am very much in meetings with government or when it comes to my licensure and things, and of course there are things that I'm implicated in. And I think one of the things that I like to have with me is always having, again, folks who can say, well, have you thought about this? This is how you continue to be implicit in this. And really like, having folks like JMAC, having folks like this group and really hearing the ways that I've thought about, there are things that I did that I didn't know were abolitionist framework. I just did them because I was like, I'm not doing that. 
That's right. And um, now that I have, it feels like now I have the language for some of the things I've been thinking about for a really long time. And that has evolved, I think, as folks have even evolved in this, you know, being at school over 10 years ago when you we had just had the new Jim Crow just came out. Mm-hmm. This book just came out, Our Prisons Obsolete. And to be 10 years, 11, 12 years later, we, we have different language to even talk about this. So yeah. definitely I'm in a both and moment, as social work school likes to say, and I'm trying to figure it out. Would I love for social work to be obsolete? Yeah, I think it's time. The same way that we say that, uh, what is it? The retirement funds are going to be out. Like this was all set so long ago. It's time to imagine something different. And I think we have to own the institutions that we continue to put into. So me becoming a social worker, that means I'm putting into, I'm valuing social work in some way. So I have to be able to question these things. Great. Thank you. This question came through for NAASW, but I'm going to ask um, both of you, what is your interaction with mandatory reporting or what is your relationship to mandatory reporting as social workers now? I am not a mandated reporter. Um, when I was in social work school and I was a school social worker and I was a mandated reporter, um, I didn't do it. <laughs> Can't take my degree now. Um, but you could take these loans. Yeah, Here please. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not in that space. And I honestly think it would be hard for me to be in that space and have the politics that I have. And, and it's just a lot of privilege that I was able to like be placed somewhere else where I didn't have to like navigate that. And I think that's part of the reason why like I can be very provocative, but I also have to be have humility because that's not a decision I have to navigate every single day. Yeah. Um, I was a school social worker for most of my, I guess, for the past, I don't know, however many long, for most of my active social work career. And so, yeah, I was a mandated reporter and that looked really funky, <laughs> really funky. And so it was like, when I was talking about the active descent, that was the, the moments where I chose, you know, well, maybe I'll get fired today because that's an honest and, and, and that's fine. Right. But like, those are the things that you do. Um, because sometimes you have somebody else telling you what you need to do in those moments. And um, I think it's okay to be in conversation about that. I think it's important to be in conversation about that. And I, at the end of my um, school-based career, I was working at a school that was in my community. And some of the people whose kids went there were my friends or I grew up with. So what does it mean to also be doing the care work in the community in which you come from and having to be a mandated reporter is really rough. Um, but I, there are a lot of groups too. I think people don't teach you how to do anything beyond mandated reporting. So you go to school, the first few days you do the mandated reporter training. And then it's like, okay, are we actually going to talk about this? What are the things I can be doing ahead of time, um, to support families? And so that's really the work when you come into a job. And if they're saying that you need to be a mandated reporter is really thinking about what are the other interventions. Um, and there's some, jobs that have a no tolerance policy. And that's really a question of, do you want to work there? And now that I'm at an organization, we work with young people. I work with survivors of sexual violence, um, definitely young people who are under age in different situations, but we're in a, there's more care activities that happen before we even get to that point. 
And so I do not actively mandate a report at this time. Sorry, thanks to both of you. Um, do you think that there is a place for professionalized care work or is there a different way that you would frame care work and getting compensated for it? I think this is a question that's still outstanding. Um, uh, yeah, I think for me, this is a question that still um, is outstanding. I feel like um, there are people that are called to do care work and that should be respected. And I am always super grateful for the people that that is their calling and that is the work that they do. Like, I would, I know I would not be where I am without the people that have, that are professional caregivers, full stop. Um, yeah, so I don't know, I don't know what it looks like. Um, it's one of the questions that I think we should um, engage in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that it means professional, what does that mean? Are we That's talking right. about licensed? Are we talking about people who do breath work and body work and other things that might not be valued in the same way historically? And so if I could take the professionalism off of it, do I think people who are care workers and give something to community, should they have an offering back for their survival and so that they can put back into themselves? Definitely. Yeah. Do I think that there should be a hierarchy for that? Do I think that there should be do we think there should be standards <laughs> in some spaces? Yes. But what does that mean? Um, who gets to create those standards or even enforce them? And I think that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. And related to care work, um, what do you think the role of the state is in meeting people's social welfare or caring for people? They got a lot. I mean, the, the, I mean, universal income, um, universal health care, housing, add-ons. Housing should not be a commodity. Child care should be supported. Like, I, that's one of my main beefs with social work is that we let the state off the hook. Um, yeah. And this, it's also that this is offered in other countries. Like it's yes. not like it, this it, it is by no means radical to offer universal things like this, right? We are behind. And, and many of those countries also engage in capitalism, <laughs> you know, some form of it. So why can't we explore that? And I still think it goes back to that. It's not a belief that everyone is deserving yeah. and folks want to duke it out. Um, but it feels so much better to just lean into some care and love than to be like, I deserve more than you. Just like better for your face, your wrinkles, your heart, your energy. I'm like, can you practice that? So Seriously. I think, uh, again, a lot of students watching and a lot of people from social work schools watching. Um, beyond closing tomorrow, what could we demand of social work schools now? Mm. Well, I would even close social work schools. I would redo them. Mm -hmm. I would redo the curriculum and talk about, uh, I would do massive political education. Mm -hmm. um, I would do community organizing. I would figure out what is the abolitionist version of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think schools can play a, 
a very important role in in like setting in building the blocks for liberation. Um, I think social work schools can be repurposed Mm -hmm. um, in the kind of curriculum because you're getting people that are self-identified as wanting to do care work in some way. And these people potentially can be the future architects of what the world can be, you know, depending on it. If our admissions is more so finding those people as opposed to the other people that keep the lights on. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would pause internship. I would not have it start the first semester. And I would have that first semester definitely be an intensive on political education, social policy history, um, and then some self, not, I don't want to use self-awareness, but like some self-assessment as to where you are. And I'd have people practice, practicing engaging with their classmates. Because, I mean, you're talking about going outside, but people can't even sit in a classroom together. Mm. without being like say that or me being in this space so doing some of that because you can practice with the people you have and yeah um I think that every I know that a lot of folks in the network teach and have classes that are probably like half a semester and I'm pretty sure all of those classes need to be a full semester whether it's an abolitionist course whether I remember when they had just built out the re-entry course um at school and it was like the first one of its kind just to even talk about people re-entering community from incarceration. Um, I think we have to, people need to know that. When I when I became a school social worker, I didn't have um, a lot of tools for addressing domestic violence mm-hmm. and families. And what did that mean to support a young, I had, and in cases where it's like I had young people who were maybe living non-verbally, re-experiencing in their classroom, and then I'm now, trying to figure out how to do interventions and then teach the entire school about it. And so I think there's a lot of issues that we know are prevalent and come up that we don't um, really allow care workers to delve into when they're in their first few years of school. And it's like, oh, well, you'll learn that when you practice. I'm sorry. (laughs) Or uh, my favorite was when someone at at our school said, you can't break them any more than they've been broken. And I was just like, and like- Children yeah, are resilient. They're resilient. Okay. And that goes back to the the belief of permanence of, of, uh, of how our communities experience the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you. One last question to close us out. But um, talking about other organizations, well, not other, about social work organizations like NASW, like all the other organizations that maybe even CSWE, um, all of the organizations that discuss and make decisions around social work. Is there any value in organizing to make NASW and all of the other organizations better, more just, or is that a distraction or futile? Or what are your thoughts on on these organizations and, and people changing them? Michelle, you could go first, girl. Faces, I don't know how to answer that one. Um, Cassandra, you said that we should be demanding more and that yes. it's surprising when like we go to government officials and they offer us shelter, like a shelter and we're like for housing. That's how I feel about that question. Right. It's yeah. like. Um, don't give me an undoing racism statement. We've been doing that for a long time. I, I want more. And I believe that there are people who want more who are, are part of those organizations. Yeah. 
I just think that again, when things are caught up in institutions that they might not be able to act as fast as like we need them to, or, and they might not be willing because of the politics of it. Yeah. I think, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Michelle. I think there are people in those institutions that want the, those institutions to be better and to be stronger and to be more responsive. But I, I think we lose if the only organizing strategy is to organize within those organizations. I think we need, I think we need institutions that they have to respond to. Like NASW had to respond to social workers losing their shit. Like, what do you mean our profession is supposed to work in in police officers? Like, I think organizations like NASW is an important institution to build to to not only push them, but also to build the alternative. And so I I, I want to say that um, going back to what Michelle said, the both and I think we have to do both. I think folks have to organize um, internally um, and to try and demand more. And I think we have to agitate on the outside to model what it is that we want because they don't have the raw ingredients to do the thing that we want. Um, They're going to have to respond to transform into that thing and organizing. We have to create the thing in real life. And the cool thing about well, the exciting and generative thing about NASW and CSWE is that it's we have the easier end we have the easier end of the stick when it comes to abolition, when it comes to social work versus prisons and, and jails, right? Like we literally could create a new institution and just start doing our own shit, right? And they have to respond to it. Whereas like prison and jails, like everyone's like, well, what happens with this? What? Nobody's asking us those questions, right? So if you're looking at NASW and CSWE, like, could we create the new institutions that have those things and get people enrolled in our vision and make those institutions obsolete or force them to be transformed in our own idea? I think that that is an excellent organizing project um, for people that identify as abolitionist social workers or abolitionists who are degreed as social workers. (laughs) Wow. That's a really great idea. I'm, I'm going to, I'm looking out for this school for people out there watching. I'm I'm looking out for your school in your city that you're going to make on your own. I mean, that's how schools come about. People decide they don't like what exists and they make their own. Um, I really appreciate the conversation between the both of you and again, all of the jewels and gems that you shared and, just wanted to close out now with final thoughts from, from both of you. Yeah. Any I mean, my final thoughts are we have to get into a space of being able to imagine the possibilities and not be defensive around them and just be able to have conversations just like the ones we're having today. Um, and then, you know, if you're thinking about it, if you're in class daydreaming about it, if you're at work daydreaming about it, definitely join a group, create a group, do something do something, mess up at it, try something again, um, and reach out to folks because th- this isn't going to happen in a silo. Um, and if you have some ideas, like we need, we need folks to be able to have ideas because folks are also exhausted, right? If you're doing this work, care work is not easy. And so you definitely need your crew of folks to be able to get into some imaginative space with. I appreciate being here today with y'all. Um, I'd offer that 
let's look for care workers outside of our profession as role models um, and as entities that we uplift. Um, there are so many people that are doing um, abolitionist social work that are not in the social work profession, right? There are so many care workers that are abolitionists that are not in the profession and that are building. So many people in different movements that through their movement work are doing care work um, that we should be uplifting and engaging with and sparring with and fighting with and like um, like sharpening ourselves. Social social work is supposed to be interdisciplinary um, and uh, abolition is interdisciplinary. Um, and so I think leaning into interdisciplinary relationships um, will only strengthen our resolved and like make our imagination brighter and more colorful. Thank you both again so much for sharing your stories and your conversation and allowing us into your friendship and your camaraderie. Um, from AASW, I'm going to thank everyone for attending today and feel free to watch the recording and visit our website at naasw.com. But thanks again, and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.